Hello dear listeners and welcome to another episode of Strategic Dialogues. For decades, mainstream peace scholarship and practice has been centered around the notion of the liberal model of peace, which comprises of state building, establishment of neoliberal political economic institutions, the promotion of the rule of law and advancement of a free market economy. But over the years and dozens of interventions later, it is evident that this focus on negative peace or simply the absence of violence, has failed to deliver a sustainable compact of peace, one that is based on a transformation and redress of underlying structural causes and drivers of violence. In this context, there have been growing calls for deeper focus on sustainable peace or positive peace. In other words, peace that has lasting foundations and one that takes into account both the capacities of local actors to build and sustain peace as well as the ownership of peace building efforts. Our guest today is Milton Nyamadzul. He's a program development manager for Southern Africa at the Institute for Economics and Peace. The Institute for Economics and Peace is a research organization that aims to create a paradigm shift in the way the world thinks about peace. They do this by developing global and national indices, calculating the economic cost of violence, analyzing country-level risk and fragility, and understanding positive peace. It was founded by IT entrepreneur and philanthropist Steve Kilelia in 2007. The IEP is headquartered in Sydney, and it has offices in six countries, including Zimbabwe, Mexico, Netherlands, and Belgium. Milton, it's indeed a pleasure to have you here, and we look forward to the conversation. Uh, Thank you very much, Faith. It's a pleasure to join you. Thank you, Milton. I think we let's get right into um, the meat of the matter. And in, in, in I think the first question that I would like to pose to you, um, just to also help our listeners and understand the, 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 the theme that um, we are going to be talking about. One of the flagship reports of the IP is the annual positive peace report which looks to advance the notion of peace as a positive, achievable and tangible measure. At the core of the report is an emphasis on systems thinking, which calls for rethink of the of the linear approach towards peace. So please, I think, start by talking to us a little about the positive peace report, as well as how it has fostered a better understanding of the metrics for measuring peace and broadly the cultural, economic and political factors that create peace. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Faith. So how the positive peace framework came about, and I think you you touched on this in your introduction, is that the traditional approach to peace was to look at it as the absence of war or the absence of crime or the absence of fear or the absence of violence. So for many years, the IEP followed this traditional approach as well. And I think it's captured in in, in another report that we do, uh, the flagship Global Peace Index. So after doing this for many years, we then took a look at all the data we had, well over 55,000 data sets, and said, okay, what are the things that exist in peaceful countries? And what are the things that are missing or weak or compromised in countries that aren't peaceful? And then we came about with uh, the answer, which is it's attitudes, institutions, and structures that sustain peace and development. And these attitudes, institutions, and structures can be divided or distilled 
into what we call the eight pillars of peace. If you'll allow me, I'll just run through them quickly uh, so that we can be familiar with them. Pillar number one is a well-functioning government. And this relates uh, mainly to issues to do with government effectiveness, the delivery of services and goods, street lighting, uh, hospitals, schools, infrastructure, and so on. It also relates to policy issues, governing all sorts of issues that relate to development uh, in a country. And it also points to issues to do with participatory democracy, the extent to which citizens and government relate well and participate jointly in development. So that's pillar number one. And it's such an important pillar because it combines all the aspects uh, of development and points to the fact that a teacher is not just delivering content in front of a classroom. They're also a key component or a key player in building peace. But I think we'll, we'll discuss that a bit more later. Pillar number two is equitable distribution of resources. Relating, of course, to uh, goods and services, uh, relating, of course, to uh, opportunities for uh, growth and development at an individual, community and national level. Pillar number three is uh, the free flow of information. And this relates to, do you have the capacity or the hardware to deliver information, the internet, schools, libraries, newspapers, and so on. It also relates to access to these. Are they too expensive? Are they cheap? Are they available in rural and urban areas and so on? And then the third aspect of free flow of information is the quality of information that goes over these bandwidths. I think we all know about fake news and its impact in society. Pillar number four is high levels of human capital development. And this is another vital pillar, and it relates mainly to skills, it relates to education, it relates uh, to the health of, 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 of citizens. Pillar number five is good relations with neighbors, and then at a national level, you can look at issues to do with tourism, and uh, you can look at issues to do with trade between countries, you can look at issues uh, to do with uh, international investment, uh, participation in, in regional and international bodies like the UN, like SADC and COMESA and so on. But at a local level, it simply looks at whether or not neighbors, uh, whether they are communities, whether they're different religions, different political parties, uh, different households are able to live together well. The next pillar of peace is acceptance of the rights of others. Broadly uh, speaking, we might say human rights, but this simply looks at whether or not we can accept each other as, as human beings. Just to look at someone who is different uh, than you and saying, okay, you're a person in the same way that I'm a person and I should treat you as such. The next pillar of peace is low levels of corruption. And then the final pillar of peace is a sound business environment. So bringing it back to uh, your question on systems thinking, these factors all combined foster human flourishing, they foster sustainable development, and they foster positive peace. This is not just the absence of war where you don't see guns shooting in the streets or you don't see anyone being beaten up, but then this community or the country has something missing. You can see that here there is no uh, happiness. You can see that there is no progress. You can see here there is no uh, development. And this is what then a positive peace brings to the, to the equation. And just to bring in the systems element where we say, okay, it is not just a linear relationship where A plus B simply causes C. 
If you look, for example, at the pillar of a well-functioning government and the pillar on low levels of corruption, can you say that low levels of corruption cause a well-functioning government? Or can you say well-functioning government is what causes low levels of corruption? And the answer is yes, because both things mutually affect each other. It's a two-way relationship. And this relationship occurs throughout the eight pillars. Each affects the other pillar and is affected by each of the other uh, remaining seven pillars. And this is what we call the systems thinking approach, which appreciates that this relationship um, is very, very complex. And what happens perhaps in the world of, of sexual and reproductive health and rights could affect the world of agriculture, could affect the world of banking, could affect the world of, of policy and governance and so on and so forth. Thank you so much, Milton, for, for that very comprehensive um, overview. And, and as you were speaking, I was just thinking about how you, you, you've eloquently laid out the pillars of positive peace. And what strikes me is just how, as you've correctly said, the, the mutually reinforcing pillars, um, which means they, they, they sort of build on each other. But also, I think what I like about the IEPs approach to to collating data and, and analyzing positive peace is also the idea of this interlinked approach as you pointed out the focus on on um, the dynamics between institutions between attitudes and between structures and also the fact that rather than looking um, at, at violence as this almost causal causal um, linear causality approach rather you're looking at it from a systems perspective where various drivers of peace um, drivers of violence um, work in, in creating an instability and violence and, and the implication thereof as per systems thinking is that we are to address this, then we also need to employ a very um, a, a systems thinking approach that that also touches on the multi-dimension dimensional nature of the causes of violence. So I think that's that's a, a very um, unique approach um, to to the research, and I think it's a valuable contribution to the research on peace. And in this regard, particularly because um, a, a lot of the the discussions that we have on this podcast center around yes, global developments, but we, we also tend to have a keener eye on, on the African continent. Um, just from where you're sitting, what are some of the highlights that and trends from this year's positive peace report with reference to developments at both the global and regional levels? And, and um, if you can also perhaps um, highlight some of the more regional trends pertinent to, to Africa. Okay, uh, thank you. Thank you very much for, for that question. And I think one of the things that we really need to, to, to underline um, is that the positive peace framework acknowledges, firstly, that peace is not uh, an accident. And secondly, it brings everyone to the peace table. When we're talking about peace, we shouldn't just be thinking, okay, uh, this is just a job for the UN peacekeepers and people in blue helmets. We shouldn't just be saying, okay, we should leave this to government and the police and the army. Everyone has a part to play. Because if you look at those eight pillars, uh, you can begin to see that everyone is affected, for example, by a sound business environment, either as an employer or as a business person or as a consumer. You can see that the free flow of information is something that you participate in, uh, whether it's via text message, whether it's via Twitter, whether it's via word of mouth. Uh, high levels of human capital development touches you uh, every day in the hospitals, in the schools, uh, in the training institutions, and so on and so forth. And this is a, a very, very good 
uh, opportunity to segue into some of the trends that we've seen, because then you'll begin to see how the interplay of these eight pillars uh, together create a pillar, a pillar of thought, sorry, a picture of what peace looks like in the world. I think the most significant improvements uh, that we can point to, I think positive peace since 20, 2009 has improved by roughly 2.5%. And 126 countries globally uh, became more peaceful from a positive peace perspective. And the key improvements were driven, firstly, uh, by good relations with neighbors, where we saw more countries uh, being able to cooperate, being tra trading and participating uh, multilaterally. There was also a very, very big jump in terms of free flow of information. I think over the past 10 years, uh, specifically in Africa and in other places of the world as well, we saw that there was great improvement in terms of access to the internet. There've also been improvements in terms of equitable distribution of resources, where you see that, for example, uh, gender uh, issues have, have seen a very big jump. Of course, there's still a lot of work to be done. There's still uh, many more steps to be taken until parity is achieved, but there has been progress. And then this has been uh, recognized and I think and noted and reflected in, in the improvements of positive peace. However, you'll notice that there are uh, areas where there have been deteriorations, where there uh, have been serious challenges. And I think the most notable one uh, specifically for the region, but around the world as well, has been low levels of corruption. Uh, this pillar has seen uh, many, many challenges and has deteriorated uh, rather significantly. Uh, whether it's public sector theft, whether it's the control of corruption, whether it's uh, uh, regulatory quality and so on, um, the broad picture around the world and for the region as well as, as has not been very bleak. Now, if you look at the sub-Saharan Africa uh, region, you'll notice that our most uh, prolific performers in terms of positive peace are Botswana, uh, which is ranked, I think, 38 in the world and first in the region, and then Ghana and Mauritius. These countries have done uh, very, very well um, over the past few years. And then you'll notice that at the lower end of the positive peace index, you'll have Chad, uh, Somalia, the Central African Republic, and South Sudan. So it's, it's, it's really a, a missed picture where you see that some indicators have seen a lot of progress, but others are also maintaining um, uh, high levels of challenges. And this, of course, affects not just governance issues, but uh, if you look carefully, issues to do with resilience and, and the ability to cope and deal with other challenges, for example, uh, such as 2019, uh, such as the climate change or ecological issues that we deal with and, and other development uh, factors affecting our, our continent. Thank you very much, Milton. And, and I also appreciate you breaking down the, the trends at the regional level because it's interesting to note how if you look at um, just the change over the years, um, in terms of the the, the top performers in, in sub-Saharan Africa, you, you tend to also see a correlation, as you've said, with other um, key indicators such as governance. And it's I don't think, as you were saying, it's a coincidence that the top performers also go, go hand in hand with um, equally 
impressive performances in, in areas such as, for instance, your governance, your human development, etc. And I think in that regard, then the, the, the question of, of correlation between the, the various um, dimensions becomes um, clear. And and for the for the analytically minded um, among us um, and those who perhaps want to raise the next logical question around methodology, which I think is important. And the question here is um, on the IEPs of methodology, particularly in coming up with, with the annual uh, positive case report. And earlier, we'd mentioned the, 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 the approach um, framed by systems thinking as a key component of the IEP's research work and the theory of change, but perhaps a brief explainer as to how the IEP comes up with the positive peace index. Um, how, how does that work from a methodological perspective? Uh, very briefly, uh, Milton. Okay, so uh, that's a very, very brilliant question and a very important one is that. Uh, and I think I need to preface it by saying that IEP is a think tank. So we're data-driven, we're evidence people, we are unbiased in our approach, non-partisan, and, and never seeking uh, to paint one side of any divide red while we paint another side of, of, of any divide uh, green or white or whatever uh, other color. So we are data people. And in coming up with the positive piece, uh, pillars and indicators. One of the things that we did, as I said, was look at the trends in peace uh, according to the Global Peace Index, which looks at the absence of violence and the absence of war uh, and so on. So we looked at what correlates or what happens uh, or what uh, goes along with whenever you have high levels of peacefulness and strong development. And what is missing or weak when you have low levels of peace and low levels of development? So in that, we took a look at 50,000 data sets. Uh, we, we don't do any primary research ourselves, but we get secondary uh, research from other data sources, such as, uh, for example, the UN, Transparency International, uh, some national statistical offices, the World Bank, and so on and so forth. And we get well over, uh, as I said, 55,000 data sets. And then we looked at these and then came up with a list of 24 indicators that then we apply uh, across all the countries of the world and then come up with, 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 with the index, which measures uh, what we call broadly positive peace. So from a methodolog methodological perspective, uh, that is the approach we took. So that firstly, we're able to compared the countries fairly and come up with, with this uh, ranking system. And then secondly, uh, we're able to, to commit ourselves and say, okay, this is a scientifically valid and, and uh, something we could put up to the academic community, we can put up to policymakers and say, okay, this is a, a very strong attempt at fairly uh, ranking uh, countries in terms of their positive piece. Thanks for that, Milton. Uh, just a, a follow-up question to, to the methodological question. Um, also, in just looking at some of your flagship reports, I came across the Global Peace Index, which is also another another of, of, a main report of the IEP. So talk to us a bit how the two are related. How is the peace, positive peace index related to the Global Peace Index? Okay. Uh, thank you, Faith. So the Global Peace Index can be can be thought of uh, as our flagship report because really this is where uh, the work of the IEP uh, started. 
And what the Global Peace Index does is it looks at actual peace or what we call negative peace. And when we say negative peace, we don't mean that it is a bad peace. We simply mean that it is measured by looking at the absence of war, the absence of violence, uh, the absence of fear. So it's minus peace, sorry, it's minus war, minus violence, uh, minus fear, minus crime, and so on. So that's why it's called negative peace. So the Global Peace Index looks at uh, actual or negative peace, and it does this in three domains. Domain number one is safety and security. So here we're talking about issues to do with uh, crime, perceptions of crime, and so on. It also looks at issues to do with internal and external conflict. This looks at hardcore issues to do with the actual fighting and the actual violence uh, between and within a country. And then thirdly, it looks at issues to do with militarization, which is the amount of money that goes into uh, spending on, 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 on the military uh, and armed forces. It also looks at the number of people who are employed in those forces. So this is what the Global Peace Index looks at. And this is the report that the IEP has been doing for the longest uh, amount of time. And I think it's been in, in, in production for about 16 years. Now, as I said, about seven or eight years into doing the Global Peace Index, we said to ourselves, okay, peace cannot just be looked at as the absence of something, as the absence of crime, as the absence of fighting. Uh, as the abs peace has to be understood as the presence of something, just as light can be looked at as uh, the presence of something rather than the mere absence of darkness or health can be looked at and not just as the absence of sickness, but the presence of certain other qualities, we thought that peace can be looked at in the same way. And then, as I said, we looked at the data sets, we looked at the data at the different countries, what occurs when peace and development occur, and then what doesn't occur when you have the opposite. And then we came up with the positive peace uh, framework. Now, the relationship between the two is actually a very, very interesting and important one. If you look at, for example, the rankings in a country in a, in a particular year, you'll notice that either the positive peace a score or the positive peace ranking will be higher or lower than the positive peace ranking. And this can either be termed a, as a positive peace deficit or as a positive peace surplus. So you find that if your ranking in positive peace is 20 places lower than your ranking in positive peace, sorry, in, in, in negative peace, this means that you have what we call a positive peace deficit. It means that your institutions, your structures and your attitudes are not as well developed as, well developed as uh, your position in the Global Peace Index might lead us to believe. And this means that the picture for the future might point to a situation where your actual peace follows your trends in positive peace and declines. And then if you have the, research, the reverse situation where you see that the attitudes, institutions and structures are more highly ranked than the uh, position in the global peace index, then we have what we call a positive peace surplus. And this points to the fact that in the future, your actual peace or your negative peace will also improve. So this relationship between the two is very, very important. And I think I said earlier that peace is not an accident. The investments that a country makes in positive peace, according to those eight pillars, 
will have telling impacts, whether it's in one year, in two years, in three years, or even in 20 years. For example, when you uh, introduce an education uh, program that takes child soldiers out of the bush and into the classroom, in 10, 15 years, those young people are now uh, entrepreneurs. Those young people are now engineers. They're now nurses. They're now teachers. They're now farmers. Instead of uh, an opposite scenario where you would see maybe they would be more exposed to crime. So you'll notice that the positive peace situation is one that can point to, uh, when it's well-developed, improvements in negative peace that is more sustainable. And then when you have the positive piece, obviously, being less developed, it could point to a situation where uh, in a year or two or maybe even 10 years, a country's actual peace deteriorates because those eight pillars aren't as well developed. Thank you, Milton. I think you've you've painted a very clear picture of the association between the two indices and it, and. I'm certain that gives um, everyone a, a better understanding of how the two indices are related. And and thank you because you actually answered what was going to be my next question, which was going to be what the value add of the PPI is as a predictor of future violence or conflict trends. From from what you've explained um, and, and, and also touching on the question of either the deficits or the surpluses, it's interesting because... As, as, a, as a predictor, um, my understanding is that the relation between the two and the, the kind of um, analysis that you also do um, is underpinned by the IEP's approach to risk. So um, maybe a, a brief um, comment on just what the IEP approach towards risk analysis is. is and um, if I can just peg another question onto that is how uh, policymakers how uh, practitioners and how other stakeholders can make use of the positive peace framework to improve uh, their programming and their policy responses to peace interventions. Um, and and um, also while, while you answer that, I think the other related question is how does this um, how does the, the positive peace uh, report, the Global Peace Index, for instance, how does it complement the United Nations Sustaining Peace Agenda? So it, it's a sort of like a uh, a three-tiered question. Um, maybe you can touch on that. Uh, thank you very much, Faith. And I think uh, I'll start with the, the value-add element that positive peace uh, brings. And this is uh, extremely multidimensional. And the first real value uh, that positive peace brings is that it's evidence-based. It is based on on trends that have been monitored and demonstrated that have shown themselves clearly um, over the past years, even when uh, looked at retrospectively uh, over, you know, even a further period than we've been doing the positive peace uh, report. Secondly, it is a very uh, adaptive framework that takes into account different contexts. So even if applied to an African country uh, where perhaps the situation or the context or the factors at play are different uh, to Middle East or Asian or European countries. Those eight pillars hold true and they are still the best way or the best uh, methods to improve both peace and development. So that is, I think, a very, very critical element in terms of the value of the positive peace framework. And then it will also lead into how it can be used by policymakers because it brings that evidence 
to say, okay, what can we work on? What can we build? Uh, what can we invest in? That leads not just to peaceful outcomes, but also very clearly, uh, for example, increases in GDP. Every 1% point improvement in positive peace comes with a 9 to 10% improvement in GDP. This is a trend that has been monitored and observed and is something that policymakers uh, can use to their advantage. Improvements in positive peace come with improvements in participation and inclusion, where women, young people, persons with disabilities, uh, minorities have more of a say, have more of, of, of uh, a reason to participate and contribute productively to society. This is something that uh, policymakers are looking for and, 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 and want to improve upon. Positive peace comes with improvements in resilience. And I think this is a vital aspect uh, going into a, into a future that has so many challenges where we're saying, okay, whether it's climate change, whether it's natural disasters, whether it's socioeconomic shocks, uh, whether it's, it's uh, political events uh, and occurrences. Our societies, our countries need a very, very high level of resilience in order to go through these events and come out on the other side uh, even stronger. So these are the elements, I think, of positive peace that policymakers could really uh, harness. And I think, as you said, how does it tie into the sustaining peace agenda? I think the, the overall outcomes are aligned and the overall understanding that peace is not just simply uh, the fact that people aren't shooting guns, uh, isn't just simply the fact that there is no war or there is no crime. There is more involved. It has issues to do with development, it has issues to do with uh, sound government, it has issues to do with the education system, it has issues to do with the health system, it has issues to do with building uh, resilience at the very lowest and at the very highest level of community. More than that, and if you take a look at those eight pillars of peace uh, that we highlighted, they all correlate to the sustainable development goals. And if you want to apply them even further to something like a national development plan uh, of a country, you'll find that the targets, you'll find that the agendas articulated can be expressed uh, in those different ways. And perhaps where the positive peace framework can be used is that it will allow a translation of these things uh, that are often in a language that is very uh, policymaker and development partner friendly to something that people on the streets can understand in their own language and in their own contexts. For example, if you're looking at the issue of a well-functioning government, you can look at the leadership of, of community clubs, of the sports teams, you can look at the leadership in in religious institutions, whether it's a chief or a headmaster or, or something like that. Those are the governance issues that are applicable at a community level. So the same goes across each of the eight pillars and it brings that level uh, of, of, of outcome that is seen and felt and experienced uh, at the individual level, which I think is, is ultimately what all these agendas that we want to uh, um, advance, whether it's the YPS, WPS, Sustaining Peace, Agenda 2030, and so on and, and, and so forth. And I think the last element of your question had to do with uh, risk and resilience. I think I touched on this a little bit uh, when I said that one of the key benefits of positive peace is that it comes with outcomes that are tangible 
and experienced across all those uh, fronts. So the economic benefits to GDP, to exchange rates, to, to employment, their benefits to uh, participation, their benefits to inclusion, their benefits to resilience, and so on. And these things, of course, when you're an investor and you're looking into a country and saying, what is the ecosystem that must exist before I, I put in uh, my investment? If you're a government and saying, okay, I would like to build up this infrastructure, these are the elements that you look at. So building up a, a stock of positive peace will then in a very real way uh, reduce the risk of, of future uh, violence, will reduce the risk of, of uh, negative responses to socioeconomic or natural shocks. And I think that's something that's uh, vitally important for our continent and our communities moving forward. I think I want to turn now to the question um, about um, impact, um, impact assessment um, as a key key element of, of not only advancing a theory of change, but also thinking about the IEP's um, um, influence on policy policymakers. On the question of impact, from our discussion, it's clear that the work of on positive peace is critical for the enhancement of, of interventions. So how does the IEP measure the impact of its work? Um, in, a, in, in, one, in one case, I'm, I'm asking about, for instance, how does it um, sort of uh, disseminate and also build on, on its work? How does it maybe um, train the trainers or, or expand, um, essentially teach others about its work, but also how does it measure impact for the policymakers? How does it say that, okay, this is the work that we are generating and this is the difference that it's making? So um, essentially the, the dissemination of the, of the research and also the question of, of impact for, for um, relevant stakeholders such as peacemakers. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Faith. So one of the key things uh, about measuring the impact of our work is that it is used extensively around the world by various partners. Uh, it's used by governments, it's used by the World Bank, it's used by the United Nations, uh, various investment and private sector players, uh, governance partners, uh, even partners at a local level, whether they are CSOs or citizens themselves. And one of the key indicators, I think, for us is the IEP in measuring our, our work is the number of downloads of our report, which measures well over 200,000 uh, a year. Our work is also used in thousands of university courses. Um, we have well over uh, 27 billion as a global media reach, and we're looking at a country reach of about 152 and, and uh, mentions in well over 20,000 news articles and many, many uh, book references as well. So this, is, I think, is one of the key ways in which we, we measure uh, our impact. We also measure our impact in terms of participation in IEP training initiatives. One of these is what we call the uh, IEP Positive Peace Academy, which is available for free on our, on our website. So anyone can log in and take a look at this and be walked through uh, the positive peace framework and IEP data. So the numbers of participation uh, in this are growing steadily. And I think that is a, a, a very telling indicator from our end um, in terms of uh, the impact of the work we do. We also measure our impact in terms of uh, our partnerships and engagement, uh, whether they are for uh, the training I spoke of or for 
partnerships from a programming or policy dialogue level. And this has been improving. We uh, have been engaging with partners such as World Vision, uh, such as the African Union, different governments, even local governments, uh, universities, uh, and so on. Such a vast plethora of partners. Uh, you can even throw in organizations like the Scouts Movement in Africa, like Global Rotary Foundation, and so on. We also measure our impact uh, through uh, M&D processes like surveys for our workshops, where we get feedback uh, from partners and participants uh, about the nature of our work, about how useful it has been, about how it has been used, uh, and so on. Uh, and we also monitor and track representation in international uh, organizations, um, in stakeholder engagement and in government policies, where uh, the mention of, of positive peace uh, framework, the mention of IEP uh, data and statistics also indicates the level of, of impact that we are, are having. Thanks for that, Milton. Um, and and just as we, we are wrapping up the discussion, it, it, it occurs to me that it would be remiss if I did not I also give you a chance to speak about some of the other work that the IEP is doing. Because while our discussion has been centered primarily on the positive peace and global peace indices, it's important to mention some of the IEP's research area. So what are some of the other reports maybe that you would want to make the listeners aware of? I know, for instance, there's also one linked to um, terrorism and also there's one that um, analyzes the economic value of peace. So perhaps a, a short note just on the other work that the IP is involved in. Uh, thank you. Uh, in terms of its importance, uh, peace is, is, is central and pervasive um, in terms of it's, it's it, the role it will play in terms of uh, growth and development in the world. So you'll find that there are so many research uh, products that we, we have on offer that show uh, the link and importance of, of peace. So coming from COP27, I think uh, I'll begin with what we call the Ecological Threat Register, which looks at uh, things such as uh, water risk, food risk, and natural disasters and resilience in communities uh, and their function on on. Uh, peace and development across the world. And I think this is something that is vitally important, especially on the African continent, because these are challenges we need to uh, overcome and, 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 and really grapple with in a real way uh, for many uh, of our communities. So I think that's a very, very key report that we also do, which we, which we produce annually, uh, uh, dealing with those ecological uh, threats or what people like to call uh, climate change. Another of our key reports is what we call the Global Terrorism Index, which you already referred to, which ranks the countries of the world in terms of uh, terror-related uh, incidences and impact. Other reports that we do uh, include the Business and Peace Report, which looks at the private sector and its interaction with peace. We also do an Economic Cost of Violence Report, which looks at the dollar value that violence is bringing to uh, our countries and our world, whether in terms of uh, GDP, whether it's in terms of lost revenue, whether it's in terms of uh, actual costs that are being sunk in. So this is another report that we produce uh, annually. We also produced really recently uh, what we call the Multilateralism Index, 
which looks at the level of global uh, cooperation uh, and collaboration around the world, which I think is something that is vitally uh, important moving forward, not just for the African continent, as we uh, uh, seek to integrate through uh, initiatives such as AFCFTA, uh, but also for our regional uh, economic bodies uh, such as Comesa, ICAD, AU, and so on and so forth. We also produced really recently an intercultural dialogue framework together with uh, UNESCO. And in addition to that, we have uh, many other research initiatives uh, looking at the various dimensions of peace, of terrorism, of the cost and impact of violence. Um, and we also are very, very interested in developing national level uh, peace uh, indexes and profiles for our different countries. Uh, for example, we've already produced a Mexico peace index, a German peace index, and are in the process of working with different governments on the continent uh, to produce uh, more focused peace reports uh, for each of the countries. So that is some of the, the other work that we do as the IEP. Thanks, Milton. Um, I think that that paints a very good picture for us and, and I would encourage our listeners to um, have a look at some of the other work that you've mentioned and, and just to get a, a, a deeper appreciation of, of the vast um, and, and multifaceted um, research that the IEP is uh, are doing incredibly important work. Um, I, I, I would I would gather, and I think in conclusion, something um, it's more of a, of a forward looking question that I would like to pose to you. Um, it also touches on just some of the, the the engagement layers of engagement that the IEP is looking for. In addition to the partnerships and the workshops that you've mentioned with various stakeholders, do you think that there is scope looking ahead for the IEP? to focus specifically on engaging, for instance, or informing um, maybe behind the scenes, informing mediation and negotiation peace agreements. And here what comes to mind, for instance, is we know that there's multiple ongoing efforts um, on the continent and just some of the ones that have been I've been following up uh, pretty closely. Uh, for instance, the, the recent agreement was agreed um, here in Pretoria um, with regarding the, the, the conflict in Ethiopia. Um, we know that there's a Nairobi process which, which tries to negotiate for peace between the DRC government and the, the various um, armed groups in the, in the region. So do you think that there's scope going ahead, for instance, for some of the IEP's core analytical work to also feed into the, the the framing, the approach, and the the way that peace agreements, for instance, are structured. Um, do you think that there's scope for for deeper um, reflection in that aspect? Hundred percent, yes, Faith. Um, and I think that's a very very critical dimension because, as I said, peace is a lot more than the simple absence of war and the simple absence um, of violence. So I think a crucial aspect of many of these engagements, of these dialogues and, and, and processes is that a pathway forward uh, needs to be negotiated. A pathway forward involves, of course, many of the investments in positive peace. And if you look very carefully at the root cause of these conflicts, you will see that uh, many of them can be located in different pillars of peace. So being able to have that uh, understanding of what the root causes of the conflict are and what key steps, practical and effective steps can be taken uh, out of this video, the violent situations into situations of growth, cooperation and development, and I think is an important thing. And I think another thing that 
perhaps the IEP uh, could contribute to, to, to such scenarios is measuring, determining the costs and impacts of violence, firstly, and then peace when it happens. Demonstrating very clearly in, 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 in dollars and cents what it means to continue uh, in a conflict situation and what it would mean to seize conflict and then move on uh, from there. Understanding that these are very complex uh, processes. They aren't a very, very simple uh, one plus one equals two engagements. So I think this is something that would contribute to the efforts of partners who are already engaged in this very important work. And I think evidence is such a key uh, contributor and such a key help um, in terms of you know improving the quality of of of, of the of the conversations and also uh, the quality of the roadmaps that emerge from from such. Uh, discussions. So, so thank you for that. Thank you, Milton. I, I want to take the opportunity to thank you for um, joining us in this conversation. Um, we've certainly learned um, a lot, um, not only about the work that um, IP is doing uh, in terms of advancing um, notions around peace and, and, like you said, the economic value of peace in addition to other interrelated aspects, but also the the, the fact that I, I think we can see much more clearly that it's just a very important and a very logical fit with not only the pragmatic turn in peace building, but also the local turn. So this emphasis on um, on local peace building, this emphasis on a more adaptive notion of peace building, and I think it, it presents a very natural fit that will certainly be beneficial for advancing the research agenda. Thank you very much for joining us, Milton. Uh, thank you very much, Faith. This was uh, a very, very... Uh, positive engagement for us and I look forward to joining you again. Yeah, and, and I would also want to encourage the listeners, as I said, to to go to the IP website, look at some of the, the, the work you're doing and also, if possible, download the reports, engage in what you've said, for instance, the, the, the workshop like the Peace Academy. And I, I think this would be beneficial in, in carrying the, the conversation forward. Dear listeners, thank you for joining us. Thank you for tuning in into this conversation. And we look forward to engaging in the next edition of strategic dialogues. Thank you.